a lot of the interactions in this book so far have involved large groups of people, like the 120 on the day of Pentecost, the, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and thousands after Peter preached, as led by the Spirit, were brought into the church. Um, thousands more were healed. I mean, were, they came to Christ after the man at the beautiful gate was healed. Uh, Stephen, he gave his address to the members of the Sanhedrin, the priests and the Levites. And uh, Philip, he shared the gospel with multitudes in Samaria. So it's like wherever we're looking, there's huge groups of people, thousands of people here and there. But today we focus on an individual, a couple of men that God brought together, not by chance, but by his divine appointment. Um, God wants to reach every person. He values each person. It would be a great dream to see multitudes come to faith in Christ and to be serving the Lord together. Um, but God wants every person to know him. God wants every person to know his will for their life and to love him and to follow him and to discover their purpose and place in his family forever. We find rest for our souls in Jesus, but he gives us things to do. And we'll see that Philip was led by the Spirit, and he met with this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, which is a really awesome passage. So as we begin, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the freshness of your word. Thank you for the light that you've brought into the darkness. Thank you for the life that you've brought into these dead souls through Jesus Christ and the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit this morning, that you'd give us eyes to see things we've never seen before, and we'd hear things that you're speaking to us that we've never acknowledged before, and we'd walk in obedience to you and uh, praise you for how great you are, that you would, you would, it's no trouble for you, but that you would, I guess from a human point, go through the trouble of meeting every one of us, of putting us in the position of other people's lives that we can touch them through the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your mercies that they're new every morning. For great is your faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm reminded of one quick announcement that I neglected to say, but family camp is coming up. So if you haven't signed up and want to go, there is a, a roster outside. And also if it's financial difficulty would prohibit you from going, please let me know and we will um, see what we can do to help. So Acts 8, 26 is where we'll be. The Holy Spirit hasn't been given by God for power to draw upon at our convenience, but he's a companion who leads us and guides us into all truth. He, he helps us to understand what the Bible is saying, and he ministers to us, and he ministers through us for the glory of God. He helps us to obey, and he also helps us when we obey. And we can't obey God unless he helps us. And when we do obey, though, there's a place of blessing that he leads us into, a place of fruitfulness. The spirit who dwells in us is the same that raised Jesus from the dead. There's nothing that he can't do. And we can take great confidence in that, not in our flesh, but in him, that he will accomplish these things in his time. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 8, it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. 
and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Philip had fled persecution in Jerusalem, and he preached Christ in Samaria. It says that multitudes came to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit came upon the people there. Many were baptized, and there was great joy in this city where disciples were being made. It's like this revival in Samaria. And in the midst of this outpouring, an angel Lord speaks to Philip and says, go towards Gaza, head south from Jerusalem. It's a desolate place. It's in the desert. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's the less traveled road of the two heading um, in that direction. And it says, so he arose and went. I'm really impressed by this. There's no like questioning, no protest, no discussion, no outright refusal. Lord, I'm definitely needed here. I mean, we need to make disciples, right? And you you commanded us to make disciples of all nations. And, and likely this move made little sense. There was no discussion. Well, why? I'm not going until you let me know why I would be going south along this road. I love how God's ways are not like ours. They, they can defy common sense, but in obeying them, we find we enter into a place of fruitfulness that we could never have had otherwise. Opportunities that we never dreamed of. God's ways are always counterintuitive to the flesh, and they require a conscious choice to walk in faith, to take a step that you wouldn't have taken on your own, to make that decision. It's like Peter and his fellow fishermen. They're, they're professionals. They've been fishing all night long. They even have a boat. They weren't fishing off the shore like I would because I don't have one. They were out on the boat. They knew where to go. They fished all night long and caught nothing. And Jesus, the next day, after he had preached, he said, hey, guys, let down your nets for a catch. It was not the time for fishing. It was not probably the place for fishing. And Peter said, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. So because because you say it, that's the only reason why I will do this. I'm not going to do it for any other reason, but at your word, I'll do it. And it said that the net was so full of fish that they were unable to bring them in. So in that moment, Peter recognized the righteousness of Jesus, his own sinfulness, and there was this miraculous fruitfulness. Now, It's a challenge for us, because what if that net only contained one fish? Would it be miraculous then? Probably not. We wouldn't see it as miraculous. I mean, catching one fish is not... I mean, for some of us, it would be fairly miraculous to catch a fish. But uh, when it comes to saving souls, even one soul saved is a miraculous work of God's grace. You cannot be saved except God has his hands on it. And that's a miracle, that someone could be brought from death to life, to new life through Jesus, through faith in him. That's powerful evidence of God's work. So even one soul saved is an infinite blessing. That's a soul that will live forever because of what Jesus has done. So happened. Philip, he obeyed the word of the Lord. On his way, there's this influential and wealthy man making a return trek from Jerusalem to ancient Nubia in North North. East Africa. It's the region of modern Sudan. It was called Ethiopia by the Greeks. So it wasn't technically what we would call Ethiopia, but it was that region. The word translated Ethiopia is Ethiops, which means to burn or scorch the face. So it's apparent, even by appearances, that he would have had very dark skin. 
This eunuch of great authority under Candace, Candace was a formal title like Pharaoh uh, of the Egyptians. There were many Pharaohs, well, there were many who were called Candace. This was the ruler of that time, and the text tells us why he was going up to Jerusalem. He went up to worship. He feared the God of the Jews. He was obviously a Gentile, and he was in charge of all the treasury of this region, so very wealthy man. He had a lot of wealth at his uh, disposal, and we see that by him sitting in the chariot. It wasn't like a one, one standing room only chariot. It's one that you could sit in and that other people were driving, so he had a chauffeur. He had attendants and servants around him. He had the sedan or the limo. And as he's riding along in this chariot, he's reading aloud from a scroll of Isaiah. So he would be very wealthy to afford such a scroll. I guarantee you he did not get the resident price. He got the the tourist price. And he was educated to read Hebrew. So there was a level of commitment he, he portrayed and education in following the God of Israel. It was common for people who read the scriptures to do so aloud. If you go to the Western Wall today, people always read their prayers aloud. Unknown to the Ethiopian eunuch heading for home, God had brought Philip, a man filled with his spirit, to intervene in his life. Verse 29, Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Philip first responds to the angel of the Lord in obedience. Then the Holy Spirit directs him to approach this chariot carrying this Ethiopian eunuch. Do you find that challenging? Are we receptive to the Spirit of God as Philip was when it comes to walking up to a stranger or someone that we don't know? How easily we can make decisions based upon what we see or what's familiar or comfortable to us. I guarantee you this would not have been his normal, you know, in a desert, desolated area, a foreigner, a dignitary, obviously a rich man. Just to approach him, he needed the Spirit's guidance to do that. But when he received it, he wasn't frozen like, whoa, hold on. What what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to do this or what's going to happen? And So none of that's going on. It says he ran. He runs to the chariot. You or I could have remained in Samaria asking for a reason to head south. Like, well, what's in it for me? How do I know that this is a good idea when I've got a revival going on here and disciples to be made for Christ? We can miss the subsequent leading of the Spirit because we haven't been obedient obedient in the first place. He was obedient to go, and then God directed him. It's a really important progression. Faith in God, demonstrated by obedience, tunes us to hear his voice. When we trust God and we obey him, the leading will come. Sometimes we want the leading to God's end before we even do the first thing. He hears the man reading the book of Isaiah. He runs up and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man showed great humility in his response, didn't he? He says, how can I except someone guide me? And admitting he did not understand led to revelation. He invites him into the chariot. The eunuch did not understand the scripture, but he had insight into his need to be taught. And that's true for all of us. Without guidance from the Holy Spirit, 
our English translations might as well be in Greek or Hebrew characters. We can't understand it without him. Acts 8.32, the place in the scripture where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. A scroll of Isaiah was not laid out in chapter and verse as our Bibles are. You could not just flip to it. It's it's likely that he'd read about 80% of the scroll before coming to this point. That shows some serious commitment, you know, to read through all this scroll in Hebrew and really not understand what's going on, but to, hey, this is the word of God, and to keep reading. Unfortunately, many people have read the entire Bible. They still lack understanding because they don't have the Holy Spirit to guide them. And uh, the passage that he was reading, it's in Isaiah 53, but let's turn to the end of Isaiah 52 for context. So Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, speaking of the servant that God would send, his Messiah. We've had the benefit of thousands of years of expositional teaching on these passages, but as we read them, let's... Let's put ourselves in the position of this Ethiopian eunuch who had never heard a sermon on this. He hadn't even perhaps heard of Jesus Christ. He didn't even know that there was a Messiah promised. There's a lot he didn't know. But as we read it, let's see what sort of questions we might have if we were reading it. So to set the context for the passage, Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. If you read this on its own, you would probably have a lot of questions, wouldn't you? Like, what is this about? Like, Who is this one who's called God's servant? Or is it Isaiah's servant? If this servant was to be exalted and extolled, why should his face be marred? What would this servant do that kings would see that they didn't know about before, but they couldn't speak against after he had done it? And what's the sprinkling? And how do you sprinkle a nation? And how can one man do this? I mean, I would have a lot of questions if I was reading this. I probably would have stopped in chapter 52 if I was this guy. If we read the Bible and we honestly have no questions, it's evidence we're not really thinking about what it's saying. Because um, there is so much to be understood of Scripture. One thing I love about new believers is they have tons of questions and they're really keen to ask them. And if we ever grow beyond asking questions, our learning, our growth will be stunted and we may even regress in our pride. So let's be those who ask questions and say, well, what does this mean, Lord? And seek the scriptures to know. So let's move now to the passage the eunuch read, Isaiah 53, verse 6 through 8, which continued along 
speaking of the servant using that pronoun, he. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. I can definitely sympathize with the the Ethiopian's questions. And he says, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Just wasn't clear to him. And Philip responded very wisely. People often demand answers to their questions without a suitable grasp of uh, the context of a verse, the context of a book of the Bible, who it was written to, when and why. And also, they may not even know God. And so just to answer their question that they're demanding, it may not actually be the right answer to give them. So he does wisely in answering the questioner. He answers the man rather than uh, giving him a rote answer to his particular question. A curious mind desires answers, but the great need of people's hearts is to know Jesus. And so from this passage, he preached Jesus to him. I like that. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus. You know, it's possible to preach Jesus from every part of scripture. Perhaps not one verse, there's a direct reference, but if you look at the whole of scripture, it is about Christ. He is central, he is exalted, he's extolled throughout all of the passages. Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.3 says that without Jesus, nothing was made that is made. The final verse of the Bible in Revelation 22:21 it says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. From beginning to the end, the Bible is about Jesus and how he brings salvation, how he's brought light into the darkness. As a youth pastor as an exercise, I taught through the book of Exodus Sunday mornings. We had two two services and I just verse by verse go through 69 different messages coming from Exodus, that all focused on Jesus without any distortion or twisting of the word. He is there. He is all over the place. And uh, if you have eyes to see, have you guys seen that? That Jesus is prominent. He is central of Scripture. From a human view, this whole interaction, it's an elaborate series of coincidences. You have Philip, a Christian from a a Greek background. He happens to be traveling along this road. There's this eunuch who's reading the book of Isaiah. He has questions Philip is able to answer, just in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's what people I've heard call a divine appointment. Neither of them knew about it, but God had sovereignly brought them together. Uh, and God opened this path of door for ministry. The Ethiopian had questions. He was presented with a savior. And may we be those through whom God is able to present the truth of Jesus. Not just answering their questions, because they have a greater need than to have some knowledge. They need to be born again through Christ. I like that the text does not describe the words exactly that Philip used. Because the words used are not quite as important as who inspires and directs them. He gave him a word at that season from the scripture 
of who Jesus was and what he had done. John 14, 26, Jesus said this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And the scripture, it's the one that speaks of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, he will teach us all things that you need to know. doesn't mean that we know everything. But in that moment, we'll know all that we need to be able to present um, the evidence of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It's an exhortation that Paul wrote to Timothy. He was a young guy and, and likely had a lot of knowledge. He probably had a lot of opinions, as we can. But he tells him, he directs him to say, be approved to God. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. There's a difference between presenting ourselves approved to God and seeking the approval of men, isn't there? We want to be studied up so that when we're talking to a person, we'll know what we're talking about. But he says, no, see that you're approved to God. Present yourself approved to God that you rightly divide the word of truth. And we only do that through his spirit. It's God's approval that counts. We might, uh, this picture of rightly dividing, it's learning to cut straight. Have you guys realized how it's, it's a learned skill to cut straight? Scissors, a knife. You're cutting that loaf of bread and it's kind of not straight. You're, you're cutting your pieces of cake and they're all over the place. And like, see, that bugs me. And I'm like, man, I should be better at this. Um, there are many valid interpretations of scripture. But the word of God provides us an internal guide so we can see what straight looks like. Because you can think you've cut real straight, but you hold up a level next to it. You realize, oh, it's not really as straight as I thought it was. You have that straight edge of the word of God. And we're able to discern, is that straight or not? Because this is the standard. If it deviates from that even a little, you're not on the line. And on the back of some wrapping paper I have, it's got little checkers. Little squares, a grid pattern. It's brilliant. I'm like, why didn't they think of this before? Because you're cutting from the front, and you're like, you know, you just slide it, and you're like, whoa, the corner of the box can't even be covered. Ugh. So you flip it upside down, and wow, you just cut right on the lines, if you can. You learn this skill in kindergarten, but you still have to keep it up. Got to have the right tool. But how good our God is to give us the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us into all truth. And we can make a, we'll still make a mess of things, and yet He is a Redeemer. He'll help. He'll make it fruitful. He begins in this passage in Isaiah, he preaches Christ. And this passage spoken hundreds of years before Jesus, it basically preaches itself. It says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, God who became flesh and dwelt among us, he was betrayed and condemned to be crucified on a Roman cross. It says, as a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Many times Jesus was like, well, why aren't you saying anything? They would say, don't you know I have the power to destroy you or not? 
And his silence was deafening because here's a man who's facing death. And he's sane. He realizes the stakes. And yet he is silent and he does not defend himself. He does not beg and blubber for his life. He's silent. And they're like, hmm, this is very extraordinary. His silence demonstrated complete faith in God and a total absence of fear of man or fear of death, fear of pain. That was gone. It was nothing. It says, in his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Jesus died the most humiliating and painful death unjustly. He had done nothing deserving death. Even Pilate affirmed this. I find no fault in him, he said. And yet he was sentenced to death. He was taken from the earth without wife, without children, without anyone who could carry on his family name, who would even remember him. It seemed he would be forgotten, laid in a tomb of stone. But he rose from the dead. He fulfilled the scripture spoken through the prophet, revealed by his life, death, uh, resurrection, and ascension to be the son of God. Philip, having been born again, he was declaring him on that deserted road. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and Philip is on this dirt road, sitting in the chariot with this rich man from Ethiopia, telling him about Jesus, saying this is what's talking about the Savior that God would send. He was part of that generation who would declare him, and we are of that generation as well. We ought to declare him. We're called the good, so the good seed of God's word, having um, received of his goodness, the Bible says, freely you have received, freely give. This isn't talking about money. We've freely received love from God. We are to freely give love to others. We've freely been forgiven by God. We ought to forgive others as we have received. So we ought to freely give. And you think about what, what hasn't God given me? He's given me everything. Now, not all divinely orchestrated events end in the salvation of our hearers. God will bring us into contact with people who will reject him and reject us, even as Jesus was rejected, was he not? He came with the message of salvation. He, Philip was not preaching better than Jesus did. Yet, in this case, God caused that word to be fruitful and that people, that man would receive it. Our call, so don't lose heart. If you believe that God's put you, you know, you take that step of faith. You approach that chariot. They bring you in and say, man, get lost. I want nothing to do with this. Don't feel like, oh, did I hear the Lord? I believe you heard the Lord. If you did, if you took those steps of faith, absolutely. But their decision, that's between them and the Lord. We're called to obey him, whether people realize it or listen to it or not. It may be God prompts you to walk down a road and there's no eunuch or no vehicles. There's nothing. It's just deserted. And you're like, have you guys ever done that? Where you feel like God's telling you to do something. I remember once going to a car park. It's like 1030 at night. It's kind of a, it's okay part of town back in San Diego. And I just felt like you need to pull over and go to that car park for a while. I'm like, I, I'd go home and just be saying, well, why didn't I go if I thought God was telling me? So I just pulled over. I stood around for 20 minutes, and there was nobody there the whole time. Another time in Australia, I was like, you know, I'm going to go to this one place at that time in the morning. I just felt like that was what I was supposed to do, and so I did. And I stood in the rain all by myself. 
Now, it's not because I'm a person of great faith. Perhaps I didn't even hear the Lord. But I tell you what, if you choose to do something, believing that God has told you to do it, you do it unto him, you don't need to worry about the results. You be faithful to do the thing he's told you to do. Whatever it is, how strange it may seem, you be obedient. He will reward you for that. You may know that God fed his people with manna. Do you know why? It wasn't because of the nutritional value of it. It was plenty of nutritional value there. I mean, it sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. But the Bible tells us why. If you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 2 and 3. Moses reminding the people how God led them through the wilderness. And I like that. God was leading them. It wasn't like, I used to say that they wandered. In one, I guess from one vantage point, they were wandering. But when I say wander, someone's wandering, it means they're aimless. They're kind of clueless. They're a bit lost. These children of Israel were not lost because the presence of God was with them. The presence of God physically guided them. When the presence of God, either in a pillar of cloud or fire, moved from the camp, the Levites would take the Ark of God, they would wrap it up in the skins, and they would follow the presence of God until it rested. Then everyone else would travel to that spot and set up camp. And day by day, God would provide them manna. So wherever the presence of God led them, they were sustained. Okay, Day by day, no matter where they went. It's like, well, the food's good here, the water's good here, in the desert. Well, God, wherever he led them, there would be food and water abundantly for them. So God had a purpose in this. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 and 3. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that's the context. God gave them manna so they would learn to live by his word, not by bread alone. He fed them for 40 years. And note, they didn't all need to learn the lesson perfectly before God brought them in. At this point, many of the people had not learned, had they? It was all of grace that God brought them in, in his timing and his plan. And I love that. God revealed himself. He taught those willing to learn. And uh, he brought them in, and he made them fruitful in the land. So all of our lives, really, it's an opportunity for us to know God better, to proclaim him in word and deed. He does test us. He does try us. Are we those who obey him or not? Back to Acts 8, verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. As they're continuing down the road, they come to some water in a deserted place. Get this. So so they're in the desert, and here's water. Another one of those coincidences. That's not a coincidence at all. 
And he asks, well, here's water. What, what hinders me from being baptized? It's likely that Philip spoke of the command given by Jesus that his disciples were to go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples, baptizing him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And baptism in water, in obedience to Christ, it's a seal of a personal choice to follow him. It's an outward declaration that we will follow Jesus. In our day, baptism in water, some will brush it aside because it's unnecessary for salvation. But every Christian ought to be baptized. There's no, there's no way um, obedience to Christ's command could be overstated. He commands us to be. And he commands us to baptize people in water. So it's a good question to ask yourself. If you're a believer and you're a follower of Jesus and you have not yet been baptized, what is hindering you? There's plenty of water around. Um, there's some of my, at my house, actually. It's a bit cold at the moment. But you know what? It doesn't matter how cold it is. It doesn't matter how hot it is. Um, there may be a million reasons you could give that you have not yet been baptized. But all of them combined cannot release you from God's command to be baptized. Some might say, me not being baptized is between me and God. And you speak rightly. It is between you and God. Uh, your refusal to obey, it hinders you from fellowship with him. Don't disobey him in this area. If he commands you to do it, do it. And he has, hasn't he? He doesn't have to go beyond uh, the scripture to command us because he has said it. Baptism is important for every believer. Every believer is important to the body of Christ. There's no age restriction that God puts on genuine faith. And there's also no age restriction placed on baptism. Could anyone forbid water from someone who's been born again through the Holy Spirit of God? Certainly not. Even in a desert wilderness, God provided water, and Philip holds forth the qualifications. He says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. That was it. And so, interestingly enough, here's another coincidence for you. We do have a church baptism coming up in the next month or so. If you want to be baptized, let me know. Or Andrew, I think he's putting it together. We, we do not want to hinder anyone from being baptized. We want to encourage people to obey the Lord in this way. So the eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The genuine faith of this man, it was shown by his desire to be baptized in identification and in obedience to Christ. Jesus was baptized in water to fulfill all righteousness. And for all followers of Jesus, baptism is a key step in obedience to him. It would be remiss to limit the application of this passage to baptism in water only. Because I expect most of us indeed have been baptized, either as infants or uh, as adults by choice, and some of us both. Um, Jesus commanded, love one another as I have loved you. It can, it's much easier to be baptized in water than to love your enemy. Would you agree? Yeah. Anyone can submit themselves to a right. But what about loving someone who hates you, who's hurt you? That's what we're called to do, to love one another as Jesus loves us. That sacrificial and active love divinely uh, shown through Jesus. That's what's to be evident in our lives. 
Philip knew the, the wealthy eunuch had a need that money or even a scroll of Isaiah alone could not meet. He needed to be born again. Only God could supply this for him. I guess the takeaway is, if we have faith in Christ, there will be evidence of obedience. We will obey him. It's one thing to say, I believe him, I love him. But if we will not obey him, do we really love him? Do we really trust him? Could you please turn to James chapter 2, starting in verse 19. And we have a great example here of belief resulting in action being taken. Action that requires faith. It's not just random action, it's particular. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Genuine faith in Christ will be evidenced by works, even as breathing and a heartbeat is evidence that a human being is alive. Right? That's, that's a clear indication that there's, it's a sign of life. If you were to go to some body that appeared lifeless, you would check the pulse. You would feel for breathing. You'd say, oh, this person's still alive. He's not just falling dead by the side of the road. He's actually sleeping, um, which happened before, where he's like, is this guy alive? Okay, he's alive. Cool. Um, if, if you have belief in God, well, then you will have obedience to him. And if you have been, if you could be compared to that rebellious child, well, ultimately, your life will be marked with humility and repentance, right? Coming back to the Lord, realizing that you have sinned. Abraham's sight is an example here. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was evident in his life when God told him to sacrifice his only son, and he actually took the killing knife in his hand after putting his son on the altar, fully intending to go through with it. So we can see that he had real faith because he obeyed God. We know that Philip, he believed Jesus was the Christ at his command, at the word of the Lord. He went into the desert. And then he obeyed God to um, the Holy Spirit's prompting to overtake this chariot. And when this Ethiopian eunuch is presented with the gospel, he says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He wanted to be baptized. He asked to be baptized. It was a desire in his heart because of the belief that he had. So if we believe, then it should be evidenced by action, taking steps of faith in obedience to God. We're saved by faith alone, and faith will be accompanied by works. Okay, back to Acts chapter 8, 39. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So they went down into the water together, baptized. Um, it says they both came out together. So I'm thinking that the baptism had happened. 
they're walking up the bank and suddenly Philip is gone. The eunuch saw him no more. And it says he went on his way rejoicing. I think if he was a skeptic, he would have maybe doubted this whole thing happened. Like maybe it's a dream or not. But it was just confirmation again that God's hand was in it. That God had revealed himself to him. And he didn't care if that if Philip was an angel, if he was a real person or not. He had just met a savior and he had been born again. And he went on his way rejoicing. I like that he was not troubled at all by this disappearance. I would have been a little... I would have been a bit confused, to be honest. Um... The rejoicing of that Ethiopian, it shows the reality of his faith. Nothing would shake him now because he had he had been introduced to a savior who could save him. What happened to Philip? It says he's found in Azotus, a city in ancient times called Ashdod. It was one of the capital cities of the Philistines. He passed through Azotus and preached in all the cities till he went his way to Caesarea, which is a Gentile city where it seems like he settled down. About 20 years from this point, uh, Paul, Luke, and his companions would stay in his house, and he had four daughters who could prophesy. And I'm really blown away by Philip's continuance following the leading of the Spirit, right? He's all alone. There's no other Christians around, and he's following along this deserted road, and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. The Holy Spirit leads him to have to preach the gospel. The man's converted, and suddenly he's taken. The word there is uh, harpazo, which means to be snatched away. Um, it's the same word is used for the, the uh, rapture of the church. So, and then he appears in this other city, and he's the only Christian there. Now, if I had had an experience with this, I would have been really tempted to go back to Jerusalem, go back to Samaria, catch up with all my buddies and say, man, check out what God did. But he kept going. He kept preaching in all those cities. And, you know, after he preached, there was real, genuine fellowship with Christians because they were being made through his ministry. And if we go, oh, man, there's no Christians around. Well, guess what? We have the good news. God can make them through this testimony that he's given us, through his word. He was a pioneer for Jesus as led by the Spirit. I don't know what Philip felt like. I don't know what it feels like to be in one place, one moment, and suddenly be in another city. And we go, where am I again? And they're like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Honestly, I don't know. I was in a desert road. I, you know, baptized a guy, and here I am. And maybe he recognized it. I don't know, but it's a Gentile city. So he probably had to ask around, and man, people responded in faith. So it's in Acts 21 where we read uh, that Luke and his company stayed with Philip the Evangelist. That's him. I'm so blessed that God cares about individuals. He cares about you. He loves you. He cares about what's going on in your life. And he wants to use you. He's also going to test you. He's going to try you. He's going to see if you're going to obey him in a little thing. And then he'll give you another little thing. Praise the Lord, when we're born again, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He helps us. He leads us into all truth. And through faith in Jesus, we can all be like Philip. He was obedient to the Spirit's leading, and he was fruitful wherever he went. 
It didn't matter if he was in Jerusalem, he was fruitful. Samaria, he was fruitful. Caesarea, he was fruitful. And he didn't neglect his own household, his own daughters, all prophesied. So they came to Christ as well. If God's called you to preach and lead multitudes to Christ, I rejoice with you. But let's all value each person that God brings across our path. God loves everyone. When we're led by the mouth of the Lord, we'll know what to say. When we're led by the love of Christ, we will know what to do. When we're obedient to the Spirit's leading, we will never be lost or alone. You can count on that because God is faithful. We can go our way rejoicing, knowing that fruitfulness will follow. So let's do the first thing. Let's humble ourselves. Let's believe God and obey him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are great and marvelous in all your works, that your ways are past finding out, and you have such wisdom in the way that you gently lead us and guide us through this life. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be as disobedient children, but those to whom you speak, and we are running to do it like Philip was. And forgive me, Lord, when I have second-guessed, and I have frozen in fear, and I have felt dread, and given place to to uh, lies instead of trusting Christ, instead of obeying you and being filled with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would show each one of us um, our great need to be taught by you, our great need to be led by you, and that we cannot be fruitful except through you. And Lord, I pray we would be very fruitful, each one of us, as we choose to walk in obedience to you, as you quicken us by your spirit, Lord, may we be those through whom you minister to this world and to one another. Thank you for the fellowship we have, Lord, that that we're not on our own, that you're with us and you've connected us with brothers and sisters here to encourage and exhort one another uh, as we see the day approaching, your soon return. So we praise you and thank you that you you are a marvelous, amazing God who does all things well, and we worship you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.